we've got more chairs coming in for those of you who are trying to find a place to sit. So I, I can't let this moment go by without telling you that this is unprecedented. <laughs> we have never had to pull chairs into the room for nursing grand rounds. So uh, thank you all. This, uh, this should go down in uh, the history of nursing grand rounds as being a very well attended one. Um, I'm Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here. And um, again, we're really happy to welcome all, all of you to uh, what is really a very important topic um, for DH nurses. Before we begin, I do have some accreditation requirements to review um, to be sure that you get your appropriate credit. Um, be sure you have signed the attendance sheet so that we do have a record of your attendance. And if you are watching remotely and folks here, we want you to know that there are, this is being web streamed as well, so there are people watching from their um, home computers. Uh, and you folks need to contact Judy Langhans, that's Judith.m as in Mary Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, um, at Hitchcock.org at the conclusion of the program so that she can record your attendance. Um, and also for our remote learners, if you have a question or comment, you can send that information to Judy um, at that email address and she can relay the question to our speakers um, while this, uh, during the presentation. Something new about evaluation forms, they will be sent to you electronic, electronically at the conclusion of the program. You do need to be present for 80% of the program in order to earn CE credit, but we do now have a new system in place, and it's no longer up to you whether or not you submit your evaluation. It is required in order for you to earn your CE credit, so we really need you to complete that evaluation form. And your, your uh, evaluation is important to us. We base future programs in part based on your feedback. And you should uh, see your contact hours on your transcript in about two or three weeks. So around dis disclosure issues, we want you to know that neither the speakers nor anyone on the planning committee has a disclosure uh, to report. They have no relationship with the commercial entity. And no one, did, no one refused to disclose. Please, um, we would appreciate it if you would silence your cell phones and pages out of respect for our speakers. And that's it. Um, this is also being recorded and will be archived on our website. So if colleagues of yours wanted to come and couldn't attend, please let them know that they can go to our website, watch the recording, let us know that they watched it, uh, contact Judy. This is all on the website, all this information. Watch it and they'll get CE credit. Um, post-presentation as well. So I want to introduce our three speakers today. Susan DeStacio is our Administrative Director of Nursing here at the Nor Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Mary Jo Slattery is the Clinical Program Coordinator for Nursing Research. And Felicia Hayes, who I think just very recently, where are you, just completed her Master's in Nursing from St. Joseph's. She's our clinical research coordinator in the ICU. So without further ado, I will turn this over to Mary Jo. Thank you and welcome. This is very exciting as a kickoff to our evidence-based practice uh, implementation uh, project here. So um, I, the plan of the day is I'm going to speak a little bit and talk a little bit about evidence-based practice just to bring us all on the same page with definitions. Susan DeSasio is then going to talk about the Iowa model. The Iowa model was selected by the Nursing Research Council as the model that we're going to use 
um, to help us with evidence-based practice. And then Felicia Hayes, who's had a, a recent experience with dissemination, is going to share her experience um, with that, that successful uh, experience at a conference. And then I will end up with talking about some of the resources here. So welcome, and um, thank you for being here. So today what I want to do and what we want to do is to talk about the relationship between evidence-based practice and the outcomes of nursing care, talk about the steps of the Iowa model, and then talk about some examples and then um, examples of successful dissemination of an evidence-based practice project. So we can't talk about evidence-based practice without talking about Florence Nightingale, and everybody learns about Florence Nightingale in, in school, but really she is the first person to take and look at data about nursing care and the environment of nurses, um, of patients' experiences in the Crimean War and really be able to use that data to make changes in practice, make changes in policy, and improve the lives of the soldiers that were in the hospital setting. So when we think about our profession and we think about the expectations for research, by the ANA Scope and Standards of Practice in 2010, the registered nurse integrates evidence-based practice and research findings into practice. And using those findings to guide nursing practice decisions, uh, initiating changes in practice, and participating at various levels of education and position. So at all levels of education and position, nurses can participate in evidence-based practice. And also to promote a climate of research um, and clinical inquiry. So those are the expectations for profession. And then when you look at the, the landmark Future of Nursing report, which came out in 2011 by the Institute of Medicine, which was a multidisciplinary group that really looked, including many, many, many nurses, nursing leaders, looked at the future of nursing and how um, we might grow to, to meet the expectations and the needs of healthcare in the future. So really what they talked about, and they talked about many things, and you've heard about the BSN, um, emphasis, and you've talked about, uh, you've probably heard about nursing pra nurses practicing to the full extent of their license. And they also really emphasize nurses being at the table and being um, involved in evidence-based practice as a basis for our practice. And that um, of the social and ethical necessity to ensure patient care, safe patient care with evidence. So clearly the way things have been done have been identified to no longer work and that we really need to incorporate the latest evidence in our practice. And some of the earlier um, literature talks about when there's enough scientific evidence to evolve it into practice that we're still about 17 years behind when people are actually implementing change in practice based on evidence. So um, we're going to change that. So evidence-based practice is published a lot in the literature, and you may, um, if you went to school a long time ago, like I did, you started probably with the idea and the concept of research utilization. So using research and practice was a concept um, in the 80s. And then gradually it has evolved to become evidence-based practice. But um, now there's a lot in the literature when you're searching, and you can find that it really does have an impact on patient outcomes in patient quality and safety. These are some examples that I pulled from recent studies, but evidence-based practice projects, looking at thermoregulation in adult trauma patients, for example, or patient satisfaction um, with visitation, staff satisfaction with by being involved and participating and being empowered to be um, having um, an oncology nursing project. 
and then reducing healthcare costs by this one project that looked at a large, um, a large group of um, implementing basic nursing care to prevent non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia. And they were able to reduce costs. They were able to reduce length of stay. Um, they saved in the large group that they looked at multi-hospitals um, billions of excuse me, billions of dollars. So that's sort of nationally, and that's um, in the literature. And then looking at our strategic plan, evidence-based practice is prominent in our strategic plan as we try to become um, distinctive in education and research in order to meet the mission, vision, and goals of the organization. We've actually already uh, accomplished at least one thing in the nursing um, bucket, if you will. We have um, implemented the um, Research Academy, thank you. Uh, Research Academy 1 and 2 have both been um, successful 10-session series that the research councils put together. And so the second series looks at evidence-based practice. So those 10 sessions are still available on the web on either the OPN or I'm not sure if the education website has them as well, and you can get contact hours for those. And so those look at different aspects of evidence-based practice. And then also on the um, strategic plan is to implement the Iowa model, or implement a model of evidence-based practice. And then it also fits into our, um, our model here, in which it actually fits into many of these tenants, but accountability for nurses to be accountable in a professional practice model. Um, so we can talk about more of that at another time, but I think that evidence-based practice actually fits into a lot of this, into patient family-centered care, it, relationship, it, it fits everywhere. Perfect. So let's, a few definitions. So research, by definition, is a systematic investigation, including research development, testing, evaluation, designed to develop or contribute to generalizable knowledge. And this is from a national um, office in the government of human research protections. And the primary goal of research, if you're thinking about that, is to um, really improve and contribute to generalizable knowledge. So knowledge and not necessarily care of the individual or the organization at the time. And that is important when you're thinking about the difference between research, quality improvement, evidence-based practice. So some examples might be a multi-site study on standardized heart failure education. Um, one, one, one organization doing a protocol for heart failure might become part of a quality improvement initiative. But on a large scale, multi-site, then it may become more of a research project. The same with the final one on nursing um, call lights. So if you did a, call, a local project on call light satisfaction, it could become a quality improvement project. But if you randomize that to 27 units, 14 hospitals, and compared one and two hourly rounds, then, then it becomes a research project that really showed, actually, that hourly rounds have a, a great impact on those outcomes. In the 2000, this is the model you may see a lot of, but this is the model of evidence-based practice. So it's an overlap of patient values, research evidence, and clinical expertise. And um, Sackett is the first person to really formalize this model from England, but um, the integration of these three components. And then in 20, 2007, Sigma Theta Tau kind of took it a little bit further and thought about it for nursing and added research evidence, patient experiences and preferences, and clinical expertise, and other areas of knowledge, um, and resources as well. And the outcomes of this decision-making process 
would end up being person-centered evidence-based care. But you can see clinical expertise is in the middle. And so for evidence-based practice, that clinical expertise really drives the question. And so you all have the best position to be questioning your practice and bringing the best evidence into practice. So some examples that we have here, we're really doing some great work. We have team care with the nurse knowledge exchange at the bedside. That's all evidence-based and um, purposeful rounding as well. Uh, clinical practice guidelines, the CPGs and EDH, those are all evidence-based and then can be tailored to the individual. And then we're implementing several of the IHI bundles for VAP and pressure ulcer prevention and the HEN work, that's all evidence-based. And then there's also standards that are um, issued from various professional organizations that have done due diligence, lots of um, reviews of literature and critiquing literature to then make recommendations for practice. So those are some examples of evidence-based practice. Now quality improvement, on the other hand, is systematic, as is the research piece, data-guided activities, but that's to bring about immediate positive changes in the delivery of healthcare in a particular setting. So the goal here is to find interventions that work well, implement them broadly, and then improve clinical practice on a local level. And we have a lot going on here, and I know many of you are involved in quality improvement. So we, if you've been here a long time, you may have experienced clinical microsystems. And you've probably been involved in a PDSA cycle. And that right now, we're involved in the whole um, yellow belt training and the green belt training. So all of that is using um, methods of systems to improve systems, process, and program. And we have a lot of great work that's going on in there. So there is some overlap between evidence-based practice and quality improvement. And we can talk about that a little bit later. For example, falls, pressure ulcers, bloodstream, um, CAUTI, and then performance measures like length of stay, discharge readiness, compliance, code, code card checks, things like that. All are examples of QI projects that we've been involved in here. And so without further ado, let me just remind you that we have uh, the Iowa model to talk about today, and we selected it as part of the, um, the Nursing Research Committee. Evidence-Based Practice and Research Committee selected the IO model after reviewing several six models, and then the Coordinating Council approved uh, that model. And so people might say, well, why do we need a model? We have all these other great things. We've got lean, we've got um, the yellow belts. But it does give us a systema another systematic way to move evidence into practice. It's a structured process. It saves time. It's efficient. It prevents incomplete implementation of evidence-based practice. How many times has a project started off with a big bang and then kind of fizzled out once um, things get in place? And it does help focus efforts derived from clinical problems and good ideas towards implementation in the practice setting. So that's just a whirlwind tour through a few definitions and a few examples. But really now I'd like to turn the podium over to Susan, who's going to take us through the Iowa model, which is um, why are we here? talk about the Iowa model, which was the model chosen by the Research Council and then endorsed by the Coordinating Council. And 
And uh, this was a year-long process of the coordinating, uh, the research council really evaluating various models. And the reason the Iowa model was chosen was it's very intuitive in nature and very easy to understand. It has a long history of use and is accepted and used in many hospitals. We felt that it dovetailed very nicely with our DMAIC process here and our research um, at Dartmouth. And we liked that it has decision points. And you'll see that as I go through the model. But it really says, is, is this work, um, if there's an identified topic, does it fit into our strategic plan? Is this someplace we should put our resources? It also promotes clinical research when evidence is lacking. And it's interdisciplinary in nature. So I know this is small. So what we're going to do is go through this piece by piece. But this is basically uh, a schematic drawing of the IRA model, so an algorithm. So you clearly know where to go next when you're at a decision point. So the first question is, what are the triggers? Why would you do evidence-based practice? So this is really spirit of inquiry. This is. Um, curiosity. So these are your new, uh, your new nurses coming to the unit, your uh, students. Why do you do it that way? Well, because we've always done it that way. <laughs> or is there evidence behind why we do it? Um, I think about, and some people have heard me tell this story, I'm old enough to remember that pressure ulcers were called bed sores. And we uh, cleansed them with full-strength peroxide, and we painted betadine, and we rolled the patient on their side and taped their buttocks to the side rail and put a heat lamp on them. <laughs> so now we know by evidence, right, was any one of those steps correct? <laughs> but that's what we did. That was our care. That's what we knew. So it's the spirit of inquiry. And these can be problem-focused triggers. So it might be something from your risk management data or your improvement data, benchmarking, financial data. Something like that may trigger you to say, is what we're doing really evidence-based? Or is there a better way to do this or a different way to do this that's evidence-based? Or it could be a knowledge-focused trigger, new research. Somebody reads an article. That's why journal clubs are very helpful, because it gets people to think about Oh, maybe we should consider doing this on our unit. National agency organizations or standards or guidelines. So belonging to a professional organization, and they put out a new guideline. And then you compare that to what you're doing in your area and think, mm, maybe we should consider making a change. Philosophy of care and questions from institu institutional standards committee. So I think about all the policy and procedure writing how we're revising and, and we're uploading to the new system. It's an opportunity to step back and say, well, is that policy or procedure evidence-based? And so fostering that spirit. So when somebody says, well, is there a different way? Why are we doing this? To then take the next step and know where to go with that. So the next step is, is this a topic of priority for the organization? So is this part of our strategic plan? Does this fit into our, our, um, our quality work? Is this where we should put resources? So that should be the first question. And then the second is form a team. So who's going to help you look at this? It may be a multidisciplinary team. It may affect providers, respiratory therapy, other disciplines. Um, it may be purely a nursing. But you need to look at who should be involved in this uh, process. And then you begin to assemble the research and the literature, because this is evidence-based. 
So as anyone knows, we now have an electronic way to look for information. So you sit down and you plug in anxiety. And what do you get back? Thousands of articles, right? And um, so although we have an electronic system now, it can be very confusing to figure out what's the information without being overwhelmed um, and without getting lost. So you know, you start, and then you see another article, and then you see another one, and then you go there, and oh, you were really interested in that. And before you know it, two hours have gone by, and you don't have focused information for your question. Um, so there's something called the PICO, or some people call it PICO. It's a way to formulate your question for your evidence-based practice so that you can really search the literature and yield to the best results. So for example, if you search what is the best type of intervention to treat teens who are anxious, you will receive thousands of articles. Versus if you search in teenagers, how does cognitive behavioral skills building compared with yoga affect anxiety after six weeks, you received a very targeted group of articles. And so your literature search can be focused on randomized controlled trials, you can limit it by the number of years, and you put in these key words. So it would be teenagers, cognitive behavioral skills, yoga, anxiety. So do you see how that would get you a very focused literature search? So the components of this question include P, your population, I, your intervention, C, your comparison intervention, O, your outcome, and T, your time. So for examples, and family members who have a relative undergoing cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which is your population, how does presence during the resuscitation, your intervention, compared to no presence, your control group, affect family anxiety during the resuscitation period? So this is a lot like in your DMAIC process when you, or when you do a charter for a project and you define what's in scope and you really define down what it is you're asking. So here are some other examples. In adult patients undergoing surgery, how does guided imagery compared to music therapy affect analgesic use within the first 24 hours post-op? In hematology-oncology patients receiving blood transfusions, does pre-medication with acetaminophen compared with no pre-medication decrease the incidence of febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reactions? So that um, last statement, I was involved on One West with an evidence-based project. There had been a change in policy from the blood bank that we would no longer routinely pre-medicate our patients with acetaminophen and Benadryl prior to blood transfusions. So we had been doing that routinely in Hemonc because we use a lot of blood products. And the nurses on One West felt like immediately they were seeing increased febrile reactions. And of course, that was causing them to have to take down the blood product, report it to blood bank, and it was causing a lot of, a lot of problems. So they wanted to know if it was evidence-based, whether we should be pre-medicating or not pre-medicating. And this was a question that they came up with. So once you come, you, you form your question, you go to the literature, and anybody have any ideas who could help you with this? The librarian, which is, you can raise your hand, Heather. <laughs> we are very fortunate to have a nursing librarian. So one of, the, one of the stumbling blocks 
is people will say, I don't have time to search the literature. So we have a librarian to help us. And we have access. Uh, and you know, you can go through our system. And we can, they, if the library doesn't have the article, they can get it for you. So this should not be a stumbling block. So you take all this literature. And you put it into some type of matrix. And people can do this different ways. This is the One West project. So we basically came up with about six articles with that question. And then each nurse took two articles to read and then put information on this matrix. The date, what was the evidence type? Was it a randomized controlled trial? What was the sample? So if it was a pediatric patient group, then that really wasn't relevant to our adults on One West. And what, what was the result? And what were the limitations? And what was the strength? So then as a group, you come together, and you look at all that literature. And you look at the summaries, and you say, hmm, well, is that enough research to consider changing our practice? So I'm going to try to use the pointer here. So you synthesize the research, and then you say, well, is there enough? Should we pilot a change in practice? Well, maybe you go to your literature, and there's only a few couple of articles. Maybe they're not really high quality research. Maybe they're not really your population of patient. Maybe they're um, in a different population. So then the group may say, no, we think maybe we should conduct our own research. We've looked everywhere, and nobody else has ever asked this question before, and we need to think about conducting our own research. So where would you go to conduct your own research if you say, I have no idea how to do that. Mary Jo. Mary Jo. So, Mary Jo uh, could certainly help you formulate a research question and then go down the research path. And included in your, in, you may also want to continue to look at things like case reports. Maybe you say there's not enough uh, randomized controlled trials, but we're going to look at consensus report, experts reports, and maybe that will give us enough evidence. So the next step, if you decide there's enough evidence, is to start to pilot a change on your unit. So does this sound familiar in terms of inpatient? When we look at um, team-based care, we already knew that uh, uh, hourly rounding, nurse knowledge exchange at the bedside, that that's evidence-based. There's already been enough literature and research done on that. We knew it was evidence-based. So we really went right to the point of piloting and doing small uh, tests of change, small PDSA cycles, trying it on the units, seeing how it worked, went back, tried something different. So when you're considering a change in practice, you start with piloting small projects. So some tips for piloting practice change. Um, use, you use pilots so you can measure to see if this is really going to work, if it's feasible. Making sure you have, uh, take time to measure your baseline data. So we heard this a lot with Magnet, in terms of they want to see from us that we, we measure baseline, in in initiate changes, and then we have measurement afterwards. We uh, want to have a planned approach for creating awareness. We want to determine the pilot sample. And then we want to review and compare pre and post evaluation with our team. So doesn't this sound a lot like the DMAIC process? Can you see how this would fit into? But you're asking, you're answering a clinical question here. So after you've done your tests of change, 
you decide, should we fully adopt this into practice? So it may be no, it, the tests, the pilots didn't go well. Maybe we need to go back and, and kind of start over again and look again at some at the literature. Or maybe we need to say, okay, this is going to be a change in practice on our unit. We're going to fully implement this. And then you have to start to look at um, tips for implementation. So creating awareness and interest, building knowledge and commitment, having trusted change agents. So one of the evidence-based practices in implementing evidence-based practice is to have evidence-based practice mentors on the units who can actually help staff nurses and help people implement uh, these, um, these changes. Building upon the power of peer influence, using creative troubleshooting, and adding, adding humor, and making it fun, and celebrating successes. Which I think, in general, nursing is very good about celebrating successes. So once you've instituted the change, you really needed to monitor the, the structure and the process and the outcome data. So in the DMAIC model, this is really the control phase. So you implement a practice change, but we know it's not enough to walk away and say, great job, we implemented that change. So in One West, um, when they went through this project, they were surprised to discover that there is no evidence that administering pre-meds uh, will decrease your chance of febrile reaction. And in fact, there can be an increase in side effects, an increase in cost when you think about masking fevers with Tylenol or um, giving Benadryl to people who could uh, potentially fall. Um, so they decided, uh, based on that, that it made sense, the new policy, and they agreed with the Blum Bank, uh, not to routinely do pre-meds, but they changed some, some of their practice. So they looked at making sure they checked the temperature just before they called for the blood product trying to administer blood products earlier in the day because most of our patients will spike in the evening. If someone's temp is on the way up, talking to the resident or the physician about should we go ahead with the blood product or should we hold off. Um, so they implemented several nursing practice changes around our um, administration of blood products. And they've been monitoring that. That's part of now their orientation and education for all new nurses on the unit. So the uh, final part is disseminating results, because it's great for one unit or one area, one ambulatory clinic, one place to do this evidence-based practice and make a change. But what we really want to do is influence patient care across the entire system, but also across, as an academic center, across the country. So um, Felicia is going to talk about her experience with disseminating results. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about my experience with disseminating uh, work that I was involved in. It's a little different than um, what Susan was describing because it wasn't an inpatient quality improvement project, um, but I did share work that I had done. Um, so uh, last year, I was finishing up my master's, and one of my final courses was a practicum course. And the focus was uh, I had to develop an education program um, uh, community health, public health-centered community education program. And the topic I chose was advanced care planning. 
Um, and my question was, would a community-based education intervention improve the rate of completion of advanced directives among Upper Valley adults? I was really fortunate when I started doing this work to connect with uh, another group of people um, who had met as part of the Elder Forum, which is a group that looks at improving geriatric care um, at Alice Peck Day. They meet monthly. And this small group of people had just started looking at this question. And so um, when I did my literature review, I was looking for what type of education interventions have been done, what's being done in the community, and what's really being taught about this topic. Um, and so I connected with them through my preceptor and shared with them what I had done. And fortunately, it was a really good match. They were happy to have me. And we started doing panel discussions in the community. We partnered with several community groups, visiting nursing associations, senior citizen centers. Um, the Aging Resource Center, and public libraries. And what we did was we had a series of panel discussions, and we also had information tables um, at flu clinics. Uh, and for the data, I use it kind of loosely because it certainly wasn't a research project, but what I did is I created a post-presentation survey. And at the panel discussions, um, Certainly not everyone who attended completed the survey, but everyone who did indicated an increase in knowledge. And they also indicated planning to take next steps. Uh, so either speaking to their physician, their family members, taking a form, or actually completing their advanced directives. I didn't completely answer my question because there was no real way for me to follow through to say how many of those people who said they were going to take an advanced directive and complete it really did. but. I think if you do some magic with statistics, you can probably say there was a fair number of people who probably actually did go on to complete them. So I took it as a positive, and so did my teacher. <laughs> Towards the end of that work, Mary Jo had sent out an email for a call, from abstract, a call for abstracts from the U University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics for their 21st National Evidence-Based Practice Conference. Um, and the topic just so happened to be promoting patient decision-making with evidence-based practice. Well, it kind of fit. And um, so I answered the call. And to my surprise, they answered back. And I, I had just. I thought, well, good or bad, I'll go through the process of creating this abstract and submitting it. It'll look good for school. It'll look good for work. It's a good experience. Um, and they actually asked me to not do a poster presentation, but instead to speak on my topic. So um, I did it. <laughs> and I did it with support of, from the Office of Professional Nursing. And it was a very good starter conference. I was lovely. My next conference will hopefully be San Francisco or Hawaii. It was, it was a rookie conference. It was a first time kind of thing. I don't really know what I was expecting when I went to the conference, but it was bigger, certainly, than I thought it would be. Um, there were over 300 people from all over the country. There was a handful from other countries. And I walked in, and it was this huge room with two um, screens like this and two podiums, and my heart just sunk. I was like, oh, no, what did I do? Um, but what it was was everybody met in the morning. There was a set of speakers that came through that everybody heard. And then in the afternoon, there were three concurrent sessions um, that people chose to attend based on their interest, interest in the topics being presented on. Uh, that was where I spoke. Uh, and then in the throughout the 
the program, uh, there was a room where people who had submitted posters had their posters up and they were available to talk, answer questions, et cetera, and you could kind of go throughout the day when we had breaks to look at those. When I was looking at those posters, I was looking kind of with two sets of eyes. So I was looking for work similar to my own. Um, and then I was also looking, my background is now care management and the intensive care unit. So I was looking for projects focused in those areas. Um, and as a representative there from Dartmouth-Hitchcock, it was um, a source of pride to see that the work that other people were presenting on was nothing new to us. It was stuff we've started working on or we're in the process of or we've been doing for quite some time. Uh, the other really encouraging thing for me was that there was actually a couple of other posters related to advanced care planning. And so what that did, I mean, for me, that really validated that others thought this topic was worthwhile, that I didn't, you know, I, I kind of, I picked a good topic. I picked an important, relevant topic. And it was really nice to engage in collegial discussions with other nurses from all over the country, um, particularly related to this topic. Um, and it was, you know, again, it was just validating to see on their reference list, I would see references that I used. And I was like, oh, maybe it's not a fluke. I'm here. I think I did this right. <laughs> so I, I kind of, I use words like empowerment and encouraging and validating because I really think that's what the final piece of that process when you disseminate your work, it really is. Um, I set the bar really low when I spoke. So I spoke to about 100 people. And well, prior to when I was in the poster presentations, one woman, I was we were looking at a poster together and we were chatting. And um, she said, oh, I'll be in the session where you are. I, I chose that just to hear you speak. So my head was like, wow, really? Um, <laughs> And then I also got a little nauseous, too. Um, but, um, so it was really nice to hear that people were interested in it. And again, you know, and I say I set the bar low. I was hoping people weren't texting or falling asleep when I was talking. And, and what I found was that people were very engaged, and they were actively listening. And when I was done, they raised their hands. They were asking questions. Um, and then after the session ended, there was a break, and usually people run off to get a drink, go to the bathroom, but there were about five or six people that came to me afterwards and were asking more questions and wanted to continue our discussion. So um, it just, again, empowering and validating. Um, I would never consider myself an expert on my topic, but I think by going through the process, I really had de developed a level of expertise. I'm able... It, it always surprised me when I can answer somebody's questions about the topic, but I can. Um, and, and it was really nice to take the opportunity to have that expertise recognized by colleagues. Um, and so I know there, there is a lot of work going on, quality improvement projects here, nurses at the bedside um, asking questions about practice. And so I would just encourage anyone who has that question or is involved in a project to really take that final step and disseminate your work. Um, it's important work. It's work that most often others are very interested in. And it's, um, it's rewarding. And it's important to have that hard work recognized. So there are certainly resources here to help as you choose to take that final step. And that's what Mary Jo is going to talk to you about now. Well, thank you, Felicia. That was really quite inspiring for all of us to, to start presenting a little bit more nationally. I'm just going to take a few minutes and talk about some of the resources that we have um, here. 
in the Office of Professional Nursing and as an organization. So some of the people that can help you and help um, people on your unit. The Office of Professional Nursing has a lot of resources available, people and um, financial, to help. We also have a whole cadre of clinical specialists, advanced practice nurses, educators, who um, will be able to help you on this journey for evidence-based practice. And you've already met Heather Blunt. And if you haven't had a chance to go actually see her, um, she's very open to helping you with your searching. And we'll do searches or teach you how to do searches. And then um, can help you with that. Heather's been very involved in the Nursing Research Council and has been um, a great colleague there. Places, we have lots of places. So we have the, the Matthews Fuller Health Science Library. If you haven't been there on level five, it's a great place to go. And, um, but you also can access a lot of those resources, most of those resources from your computer. So online, if you check their website, they have a whole slew of resources related to evidence-based practice, um, tutorials, slides, uh, forms to help, all kinds of things. And then in the OPN website, we're developing that at this point in time, but the Nursing Research Academy exists on the OPN website, as I mentioned earlier, so you can link to that. And we have other plans to add a lot more tools and resources to help staff um, be able to use the Iowa model. We've um, received and will be developing a lot of resources to help that. And Rachel has um, created a new contact for us called ebp at hitchcock.org. So you can just, if you have a <clears throat> an evidence-based practice question or you have an idea about a project, you can just um, email and I'll receive it or somebody in OPN will receive it to be able to then follow up with you and try to think about what would be some next steps. So that's pretty exciting. And then some of our other next steps, we're going to align with this work with shared governance. So we'll be doing a refresh of the evidence-based practice and research committee, but also then creating a new committee uh, for evidence-based practice implementation. That will be a subcommittee of the new evidence-based practice and research committee. And that subcommittee will be involved in developing curriculum, tools, um, goal setting, really getting us to the next step of how do we take this model, now we have this model, how do we get that and hardwire that into our practice and the resources available. Probably pilot that on a few units with a few projects. So I would suggest, you know, if you're interested, and I do hope you are, to contact either myself or other folks in the OPN and um, about getting more involved. And you know, stay tuned because there'll be more to come. This is just the beginning of what we hope is a very exciting start. So I'd like to invite my colleagues up here, and we will take any questions if you have questions for us at this point in time. We wanted to leave plenty of time for discussion. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about any um, Well, um, let's see, right now we have a couple of projects with actually Susan has a project that she's doing in oncology with John Sullivan, our summer undergraduate research fellow. And they are looking at, um, and I'll let you talk about yeah. it actually. So, um, uh, there was a change in the practice guidelines recommendations from the Oncology Nursing Society about uh, personal protective equipment that nurses wear administering chemotherapy. So there's a change in guidelines. The nurses are being re-educated and started asking questions. Why are we using the same gown all day? Why are we doing this and that? 
So as part of uh, John's work with us, he first went back to the literature to look at what, what is the evidence uh, for wearing personal protective uh, equipment during the noise restriction, and then compared that to our policy. He's now in, and there's a difference, um, so he's now doing an observation period to see what our nurses are actually doing. Um, and so, and he's been working with the team, Kathy Rodriguez, our clinical specialist, we pulled in some staff nurses, and we've been um, also um, Lindsay Waterhouse, and so we've been looking at that until we, and the, we hope the final will be a recommendation for changing practice and changing policy. Um, but we had to collect the data first. Anybody have examples of that they're doing in their areas? Um, so Buffy can certainly speak to this as well, but one of the things that we've been looking at in um, Chad as part of the uh, pediatric hospital engagement work on um, central line associated bloodstream infections is the use of CHG baths in the PICU. And so that right now is a recommended practice. There's not a lot of evidence out there, so we are in the process of examining that evidence and get, gathering expert opinion, and we'll be um, making a determination. We'll be going through the algorithm to see um, will we begin to pilot that work and collect data for our population in pediatrics and PICU related to that particular um, intervention and then uh, work to disseminate that with what we learn. Any other examples? Then I want to recognize that we are recording this session, so I wonder if we have a microphone or anything that we could pass out while people are answering or asking questions. Thank you, Rachel. I don't know that it's working. We can just repeat the question. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else want to offer an example? John, I'm going to steal your thunder just a little bit. John Sullivan is also working on a project with Karen Secor on 5 West about the use of oxygen in patients having seizures. Everything we do with oxygen is anecdotal. Um, a lot of nurses, as soon as they see the Massimo drop down to 82 or below 90, they throw oxygen on. I tend to wait until the person, the person's color changes or turns dusky because they are, a lot of them are breathing a little bit. So there was no evidence-based practice. Well, now there is. John's research shows that people's metabolic systems, heart rate and oxygenation, return to baseline much quicker if you put oxygen on. So if that's going on, then my practice has changed. Then I'll not wait for people to turn dusky to put oxygen on. Both complex partial, well, partial seizures and uh, generalized seizures. Question in the back here. Um, I, I thought I saw in the presentation earlier that financial. Wait. <laughs> Thank you. 
I thought I saw in the, in the presentation earlier that financial data is used in evidence-based practice here at DH. I'm just wondering, how, how do you incorporate financial data into evidence-based practice at this time? So that was really a trigger. That's one of the triggers. So it could be, um, I'm trying to think, I don't know of an example. This was um, a project that was a couple years ago when I worked with the blood bank, and that was looking at returned units from the OR that weren't used in the OR but were sent to the OR, sort of most likely preventatively in case. And so there was a financial return on investment where if you didn't have to send those units out or you could get them back quicker and they were still within control, they could go back into inventory. So there were, I think at the time we estimated 300000 a year or 350000 a year of cost savings, not throwing these blood units away. Good. So when I think about, um, this wasn't a specific project here, but sorry, I'm from the oncology world, but so in febrile neutropenic patients, we always admitted them to the hospital. But then there was um, some research, which then resulted in practice change to say there is a subset of population of patients you don't have to admit to the hospital. Um, and that's evidence-based um, practice, but that can save you financially uh, for, from all those admissions. Other questions? Mm -hmm. So if you're um, involved in, hold on, did it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so this is more around, um, Publication. Um, so you're doing an evidence-based practice project, and say you have a sort of a long-term goal of publishing. Let me rephrase. So let's say it's a quality improvement project, and you may want to publish it. Do you? What's the what's the rule around getting um, having it go through IRB if it's quality improvement and not evidence-based practice or? This is kind of um, a murky question. So some people think that if you're going to publish it, you have to go to the IRB, or for us, our CPHS. And that's not necessarily the case. Some journals expect you to get IRB clearance for publishing quality improvement data. So our CPHS, our IRB, is very willing to work with people to ensure that they're putting together the right materials and protections for patients' rights and ethical the ethical issues that you need to address in research in quality as well. So that is something that you can follow up with them and don't have to go through the full IRB approval process, but maybe a study or a project can be deemed what's considered exempt from further review or considered a new category, not human subjects research. So a lot of quality improvement is okay. now being considered not human subjects research, and you can get a letter from them saying so, which helps you in your your publication initiatives. So it seems like just to be sure, if someone is interested, they should probably contact you or whomever just to run it through that protocol before they move to the next step. It never hurts. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
so one thing that uh, I think people take for granted or don't think about is that survey is a type of research, and I don't think people think of it in terms of research. There actually is, if you're doing survey of humans and you intend to publish that, you have to have IRB approval for that as well. And there's lots of nuances to that of what your relationship is to the people that you're surveying. So if I, as a manager, wanted to survey um, my staff, that has some, depends on what my question is and what I'm asking, um, and that might impact, you know, I have to have special things in place to show that it's anonymous and that it's not gonna impact, you know, my decision about their work. And um, anyway, I just wanted to bring up survey research. And some people, some people don't think that employees might be one of the vulnerable people, vulnerable populations, and they are because they do have that um, relationship issue and the coercion issue and the pressure kind of thing. So they have special protection. I just wanted to comment that there's a set of guidelines that were established in 2008 called the Squire Guidelines, which are standards for quality improvement reporting excellence and that's available on the website, that's helpful in at a national level to say what the guidelines are for perform, you know, quality improvement projects. That being said, most organizations have specific rules and regs that they use, and there's a, strat, a pathway for um, expedited review for many of these. Yeah, I was going to say that it was created here. Paul Battalion's work and some and Gene Nelson's and some of those other folks things. Any other questions? Anybody think of a, a topic? Are you burning like, you know, go back and you've always wondered why something's been done? Anybody want to share an idea? Well actually it's a I work on five West so it's seizures seizures I work on five West so it's seizures RS with me. When patients are going through the process to determine if they're surgical candidates for their epilepsy, one part of the process is having EEG leads implanted into the brain. And while they're in the brain, some of the patients undergo what's called brain mapping. They, they stimulate the, the leads and see what happens. I worked with Dr. Yopes yesterday. And, oh, and the question is, should the patient be premedicated with Ativan to prevent seizures during this brain mapping because that's one of the risks. And one doctor does that on a regular basis. That doctor gives the person some Ativan and then maps. And the other doctor doesn't. So when the person is seizing, then he gets the Ativan. So now I'm wondering how that affects the outcomes to the brain mapping. Does giving the Ativan uh, before seizures happen impact the data because the person's somewhat sedated? Or are they impacted because they have a seizure? Good question. Now form a team. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, so before we wrap up, any anything else, any comments? We look forward to implementing this model and supporting uh, people as they think of these questions and how to change practice. Thank you. Great. Thank you.